Poddo. Presbury, a village on the edge of Cheltenham, which has, to some extent, become subsumed into the larger town's boundary, is said to be the second most haunted village in England, just behind Pluckley in Kent, which reports 12 distinct ghosts that haunt its ominously named Screaming Wood. It is said that during the English Civil War, roundheads camped nearby anticipated the arrival in town of a cavalier messenger, and so stretched a rope across the Burbage, the village's most ancient street, in order to unseat the rider from his horse. He was then summarily executed, and, in indignation at his fate, haunts the village. Residents frequently claim to hear the sound of galloping hooves or the tortured snorts of his loyal mount. The spectral hooves that you're currently hearing aren't actually made by a horse. They're made by two halves of a coconut. I was walking to Tesco to buy a coconut, which is botanically not a nut but a droop, like a peach, when I spotted a pre-opened one in the gutter. To save myself however much a coconut costs, I picked it up, took it home and cut it in half with a handsaw, something which is much, much easier said than done, and which I'm playing now like castanets, to make you feel like you're there in the gloom of a chilly Presbury evening as the spirit world makes its purgatorial presence known. But of all Presbury's ghosts, it is the Black Abbot who is most famous. He used to walk the aisle of St Mary's Church, but following an exorcism has been relegated to the graveyard to walk for eternity amongst the tombs and headstones, dead among the dead. This is a story of death, and of the spooks whose departures from Earth still ripple through space and time. This is the town that knew too much. I'm Nick Hilton. Scratch beneath the chocolate box veneer. And really, it does look like a Nancy Myers reimagination of what a British town should be. And you'll find that what makes Presbury alluring all begins and ends with the dead. To this day, the town's main tourism driver is the ghost walks, where busloads of visitors take in the hauntings and try and commune with the departed. It's deeply morbid, of course, but then so is this podcast. Well, supposedly Presbury is the most haunted village in England. And I would always begin any themed walk I do, and I do them in a number of places, by saying that I've got a fairly open mind on on such matters. It's up to people themselves. But what I will do is tell you a series of stories that have happened to other people. That's the voice of Ian Jelf, a blue badge tour guide who often leads ghost walks in Presbury. Presbury is almost suburb of Cheltenham. I mean, they'd be horrified if, if I said that, but to all intents and purposes, it is. It's almost continuously built up with Cheltenham. It was actually founded by a colony of monks who had fled from South Wales, and they were given some land there by the Bishop of Hereford. And Presbury actually is the defended place of the priest, Priestbury. And the little town or big village grew up around this little priory there. Perhaps for other reasons, it has got this reputation for strange and ghostly goings on, most of which revolve around the, the story of the Black Abbot, who we don't know for certain is an abbot at all. That's the name that people have given to him, which is someone in a, a monk's habit, face always invisible, seen in a number of different places. He does a sort of triangular patrol around the village, one near the old monk's burial ground, one across a field. 
and notably around the parish church in the middle of the village. And the people of Presbury, do you think they buy into this? We did go to the nth degree not to disturb anyone. It's a quiet residential village. Don't take too many people around. Don't do it that often. But I never got anything negative. And I sometimes got positive stuff. The people that ran the village shop, they were always terribly interested and used to get people greet you wandering around the, the village streets and so on. What happened with the vicar was only secondhand to me. So I never had any direct contact with him. Was that the vicar in Presbury? Yeah. I, I saw emails which said things that were just astonishingly, well, untrue. Uh, and, and I was just absolutely amazed at some of the things that, that were written. Certainly, I wasn't stirring up black magic or, or Satanism. <laughs> so, so, so they were, they were, the Presbury Vicar basically doesn't like you going in the churchyard. Well, uh, in the emails that I saw, they said that we had been disturbing mourners at the graves, which was a, a quite ludicrous assertion as firstly they were always at night and secondly I never saw anyone else in the churchyard other than people walking through and you just wouldn't you know I mean it's just not and then there were things like the, there were a lot of children that were in the village and um, they wanted to protect them from such things but even on Halloween when I did there when we were extra careful I never saw anybody else doing anything like this it was a it was a very very surprising thing Cavalier messenger, knocked off his mount and executed, shows that passing messages was a dangerous business in the 17th century. Try as you might to get around it, humans are fallible. It makes me think of the possibly apocryphal story from ancient Greece where a slave would have his hair shorn and then a message tattooed on the fleshy canvas of his bald pate. They would then wait for his hair to grow back. This is why I suspect the story may well be bullshit, because what sort of message combines the secrecy necessary to start tattooing a human being, but the lack of urgency required to wait an entire hissute cycle before sending? But the idea is that then said slave could be sent off to the recipient. That slave, if encountered on the way, could plausibly deny bearing any message, but the recipient would know to shave the slave's hair on arrival and read the secret, but not at all urgent, missive. Whenever messages were being sent on horseback between different commanders and uh, rulers of countries, those messages were encrypted. Mm. So encryption has been around since ancient Egyptian times. That's the voice of Philip Ingram, a self-described former spook and now intelligence expert. It's protecting the messaging. It's just the methodology of that messaging being passed from A to B. And uh, what happens in the communications world is you're trying to intercept a message between two points and understand what that message is saying and then put the message into context. It's very difficult if you get something, you've pulled it out of the airwaves or you listen to a telephone conversation, actually to put it into complete context. It's like looking at a complete scene in front of you through a drinking straw. You only see that little bit that's in there. Whereas human intelligence um, allows you to understand intent and understand the rationale behind something and, and to task that. So it's important that the different intelligence dis disciplines work together. The difference comes in when we get into the cyber world. And now with, as I mentioned earlier, with big data uh, and with a wider understanding that can come in, you'll either pick up a lot of information about someone or you'll pick up some people think they can hide by producing no information. Well, for an intelligence professional, nothing, a hole, a gap 
is as big an indicator and red flag that someone's important as there being lots out there and you've been able to analyze it and all the rest of it. And interestingly, Osama bin Laden was discovered in Pakistan effectively because there was a hole in what was going on in the town that he was in. You know, all of the other houses had a an electromagnetic spectrum around them where their, their emissions were coming from their home Wi-Fi, telephone calls going in, as well as a physical emission, people going in and out of the buildings and all the rest of it. But the building that he was in, there was no input and output electronically. There was no um, regular movement of people in and out of the building. And that big black hole stood up like a big red flag and went, ha ha, here's an area that we need to be interested in. So you then focus different assets that look at things from a different way. And this is where intelligence only works if you can approach it from a multidisciplinary perspective. On the human side, you know, MI6, whenever they run a new agent, at the, the, the very last lines of any report that they write, especially whilst they're still evaluating them, is that um, we have to remember that this individual could be uh, trying to influence as much as inform. And it's the little warning not to take what's being said at face value. Whether your encryption device is a computer or a human, and I say that as someone writing this on a near decade old MacBook that from time to time experiences a full system meltdown, the process is fallible, the wiring is imperfect. Back at the start of the 19th century, the king fell ill. This is, of course, not an uncommon occurrence. Kings get old, old people get sick, they all die of something. But George III was different. His reign had been eventful, to say the least, encompassing the American War of Independence. He has been immortalised in the musical Hamilton as a petulant man-child, the work's sole Brit too, and the Napoleonic Wars. But by the time of the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, a regency had been established so that his son, the Prince of Wales, could govern in his stead. George had been permanently debilitated by mental illness. The way I would think of it is it was very, very sad. That's the voice of Catherine Curzon, an historian and author of three books on George III. And we go through the periods of him being treated by Dr Willis, who was a clergyman turned physician who had treated a courtier's mother for what was termed madness. And he became very famous, and very rich on the back of it. And he was the person that was brought in to treat the king. And he subjected the king to an absolutely, to our eyes, barbaric regime. So he was bled and purged and blistered and he was straitjacketed and they had a contraption which George himself nicknamed the coronation chair where they would strap him into it. And while he was strapped in, they would apply leeches or blister plasters or shave his head. When you read reports of the king's condition, which were, you know, reports were sent daily of what was happening to the king, on top of the reports of exactly what treatment he was receiving and how he was reacting to it you also get letters from his wife and his children where they talk about the changes in him and not in a way that they're saying oh no he's really changed but there's letters where they suddenly you know they'll say that his eyes can't fix on you anymore or that his legs are horrendously swollen and bloodied and we start to see now you know as as we hope, more enlightened people, that obviously a treatment for someone who is undergoing an episode of mental illness is not to gag them, throw cold water over them. And then the king is sent down to dinner with his family and at the slightest thing, he drags the Prince of Wales out of his chair, throws him across the room and goes into an absolutely violent temper tantrum. The reaction to this is to send him back for more treatment, which is even more extreme. So the king's final descent, if you like, into madness 
was occasioned by the death of his youngest daughter. And by the time Princess Amelia dies in 1810, King George is already, although he's still ruling, he's still pretty much incapacitated. He's virtually blind. He's suffering terribly with rheumatism, so he can barely walk. He can barely get around. But he puts a lot of the focus that he has left is on Princess Amelia. So they're both invalids. She's suffering from tubercular complaints and they essentially live over the courtyard from each other. And every day they have tea together, just the two of them. And we know from letters left by other members of the family that when George is with Amelia, they seem to share little private jokes and little stories. And he, if you like, comes out of himself with her. He always found her very calming company. So when he was younger and unwell and confined at Kew, Amelia would be brought to see him through the window or held up to him because she calmed him. So when Amelia dies, George never gets over that. And pretty much from on her, you know, on her deathbed, she gave him a mourning ring. And he broke down when she gave it to him because he recognised, despite everything that he was going through, this is it. This is the end of it. George, knowing this the last time he saw her, broke down in tears beside her bed and had to be eventually sort of physically taken out of the room. And from that, he never recovered. In 1788, the king spent five weeks in Cheltenham, drinking the waters, promenading, and generally acting as a jingoistic tourist beacon that would stay aflame for the next 250 years, a quarter millennium. In that spell of little more than a month, George set the reputation of the town more thoroughly than any other event in its history. It became a sort of legend, a folkloric tale of the Mad King. The importance of folklore of owning your traditions can never be underestimated. Presbury may not have chosen its ghosts, but it needs them. It's an identity, and here in the undulating hills of the Cotswolds, where each little village has its own story, moments of history, fragments of culture seep into the fabric of life. My Gloucestershire born and bred partner Anna will always, come Christmas time, and with the solemnity of one giving a reading at midnight mass, turn on the 1993 BBC animated adaptation of Beatrix Potter's The Tailor of Gloucester. It is a trippy, baffling, borderline nonsensical work, but one that by that strange alchemy of person and place makes sense to the people of its area. Well, the, the, there is there were some unusual challenges in as much as, for for instance, you, the mice that sing because it was a big long singing sequence that had to be sorted out before they animated. You could imagine that's the voice of Colin Towns, a composer for films including the 1988 Nicolas Cage vehicle Vampire's Kiss. He was also a keyboardist in Deep Purple's Ian Gillan's band. Naturally, he was hired to write the songs for the Taylor of Gloucester. Believe it or not. Um, it was analogue then, and what you could do, you could slow down the machine, sing falsetto, and then speed it up slightly so you get much higher. There was an awful thing in the bloody 60s called Pinky Perky, which 
sold millions, but it was awful stuff, and it was it was two people doing that, but fast, and so I had to avoid it. It can't sound rubbish, you know. It's all, had to sound like little mice forming a choir. So I did all the voices. It, it took quite a long time to do it. Just sat there one after another. I mean, I've not got a great voice, but I, I used to do quite a lot of these bits and pieces if I could. And it was um, directed by a guy called Barry Rose. Barry Rose is um, somebody that's... He started, I think he started in Salisbury, then he went to St. Paul's. He did Charles and Di's wedding, conducted all that stuff, our part of it. And then um, I used him on Brother Cadfield. So I got him in and, and said, well, we need to record this choir. So it went actually to St. Albans when the cathedral was shut. And it was it was winter, it was nice and warm. And it was like going to a very large living room. And we recorded it in the cathedral. So that was a very magical time to be doing all those bits before we got to the actual scoring of the rest of it. In kind of the years go by, I mean, I, I know I sent in my first email, Laura responded by saying that you were just talking about the Taylor of Gloucester, that, yeah. you know, it still comes up. What's been the kind of legacy, either personally or do you think in the kind of wider area? I think, it, first of all, it's a little bit tragic. There were the BBC films, and I don't know what they did, but they messed about with it, and they didn't get the most out of those films. They actually didn't get the most out of the music because The Perfect Day has been sung in Australia by an opera singer. Lots of get lots of emails from people. The singer who lives in America, she gets emails all the time more than anything else she's done. So they didn't really do a very good job on all of that. So that was a little bit, bit sad to see that um, it got pushed to one side because they are true to the book and I think they're all all of them have got something rather special but what I did from that was I did go on and I worked quite a bit with them after that Wind in the Willows and all these kind of films so I did about 13 films in the end which was um, I think more than anybody else but due to the the way the BBC is uh, they had a woman come in called Jane, Jane Tranter and because I'd done so much with Michael Waring who was an extraordinary head of drama she decided I'm never going to go there again. That's how they work, you know. You just accept that and move on, which is what I did. The world isn't a fair place, is it? We all know that one. But the the animation thing, I was very lucky to have a long period of... I found it very exciting, and I enjoyed working with these people because none of these people knew me. They knew of my work but didn't know me. And to get on with so many people... I've often wondered how, how I've never been found out. <laughs> you think, oh gosh, someone's going to find me out one day, but it doesn't happen. I have been lucky, but it's been a huge amount of work. I mean, it's not like um, when people talk about working a lot now. I mean, most composers work, work in teams. I've never worked in a team. I've never had an orchestrator or nothing. I've just figured that I'll, I'll learn it to myself. And the musicians, they, they can relate to that because it's music coming from inside and not from, you know, education stuff, which sounds a bit boring after a while. You know, you want to hear want to hear some bum notes, don't you? <laughs> I do anyway. I want to hear people struggling and say that was a, that was a really exciting time. So I'm nothing. I'm just an ordinary person doing what I do. But I've been lucky enough to say, well, the way I do things, people have gone with sometimes, so that's lovely. For all that the town may cling to its associations with George III, it is, after all, why Cheltenham is known as Cheltenham Spa, though not Royal Cheltenham Spa, as suggested by a Mr F40 in council minutes from 1915. Sorry, pal. It was not a successful visit. His spell in Cheltenham could not revive him, mainly because spa water is not actually medically useful in any way. 
He died on January 29th, 1820, bringing to an end the Regency era. His son, the Prince Regent, became George IV, another bad king in a long, unhappy list of bad kings. Hundreds of years on from the genesis of the Black Abbot's legend, Presbury would be touched, once again, by death. Gareth Williams grew up in Anglesey, an island on the northwest coast of Wales. It's a remote part of the UK, facing out into the Irish Sea, closer to Dublin than it is to Manchester. A gifted child, Williams studied maths at his local university in Bangor, graduating at the age of 17 while still a schoolboy, before going on to do further study in Manchester and Cambridge. His school teachers recalled that, even as a boy, Williams was interested in codes and ciphers. So it was perhaps no huge surprise when he was hired by GCHQ to join their legions of mathematicians. GCHQ requires a small army of human calculators for its smooth operation, and has a history of offering employment stability, particularly to people who are neurodivergent or, in other ways, ill-suited to the rat race of the private sector. Williams, who was somewhere between quiet and reclusive, found a home there. For reasons that I can't really sympathise with, I'm a classic nester, Williams rented a room for a decade with an elderly couple, the Elliots, at their home in Presbury. Perhaps he was a ghost enthusiast, or perhaps he just didn't want the commitment of making a home of his own. Who knows? It did make some sense, I suppose, giving him a 16-minute commute by car with a drive through McDonald's on the way. Although Williams, a fanatical cyclist, presumably raced along the A4013 on two wheels instead of four. It was all a fairly ordinary experience by the standards of GCHQ employees. Just a nice, polite, kind of nerdy guy going about his business. Not the sort of thing international conspiracy theories are usually built on. That was all until August 2013, when, while on secondment in London, Williams went out of contact with his employers for several days. The security services, who are understandably more proactive in following up on staff welfare than most employers, entered the flat he had been renting, and there they found his body, naked in a hold all, padlocked from the outside, in a bathtub. I think it was DCHQ that basically were the ones to kind of start uh, raising alarm and it eventually led to the police after some prompting from his possibly his family as well to to make a visit to the flat. I think they they tried knocking on and you know they weren't able to. They had to get somebody from the uh, state agents to to provide the spare key to the flat, and then they were able to enter. They kind of thought the the flat was relatively tidy, um, and they didn't see anything unusual until they entered an ensuite bathroom in the bedroom where, you know, they found basically a bag and I presume that there would have been other indicators of there being a dead body, obviously, in, in that section of the, the property. That's the voice of Iggy Ostanin, an investigative journalist for outlets like The Guardian, Sunday Times, Byline Times and Bellingcat. He has written extensively about this case. You know, that they had a death and so that would have the relevant kind of investigation to that. And so I think then, obviously, the forensics would have come to the flat. We've got a spy who's found dead in a hold all in a bathtub in a flat. And then the Met basically decide that this was probably an accident. That will seem kind of crazy to most people. Can you talk me through how the kind of Met arrived at what must be quite a controversial decision? It's not actually a position I take, but to to, to understand where they're coming from, I think you'd have to look at the investigated 
things like the the details of the flat and the, the forensics was that I think that they the conclusion was they didn't find traces of there being somebody else involved. They also didn't find that what Guy Williams was doing in, in his work would have exposed him to really risk, that he, they thought he was just a junior analyst, which is fair enough. And that the really big thing really for them was the fact that they, after sort of going through his uh, laptops and phones, they found some sort of suggestion that he may have looked at some bondage websites. And some of those bondage websites may have been linked to a really quite specific sort of interest of self-bondage. And they link that with the account of a, a landlady that Williams had in Cheltenham, who said that she'd once been sort of woken up late at night or disturbed late at night by Gav Williams, who was sort of like their lodger, I think, uh, shouting for help because he, in his boxers, and he sort of handcuffed himself to his bed, but he wasn't able to unlock it. I think that they, they probably wouldn't have provided much detail about what could have happened, but they would have then suggested that this must have been sort of, you know, an act of self-bondage that went wrong. And as evidence as well, they would have had, you know, people sort of trying to recreate the, the kind of the effort of locking themselves in the bag and kind of like basically manipulating the zips and the lock to, to lock it from the outside, basically. Their assessment was that it was possible and that this was the most likely explanation for how he died. William's body was found in a red North Face holdall, the sort used by overburdened children setting out on a Duke of Edinburgh ward expedition through the driving British rain. The fact of it being this piece of luggage, which was exhibited at trial to be just about big enough to store a human contortionist, has always surprised me somewhat. Wouldn't it have been more usual, at the very least, for a spy on secondment down in London to have a proper suitcase, rather than the less convenient option of a holdall. But then again, luggage doesn't have a very storied history in that department. Despite the wheel itself dating back to ancient Mesopotamia more than 5,000 years ago, the idea to put them on a suitcase apparently didn't strike anyone until Bernard Sadow, travelling through Puerto Rico in 1970, saw a porter using a wheeled luggage rack to transport suitcases and realised that the two things needn't be distinct. What if the wheels were simply on the luggage? Sadow patented rolling luggage in 1972, though his patent was broken a couple of years later. But wheeled luggage still didn't become widespread until the late 1980s. So for the vast majority of human history, indeed, within the lifetime of anyone aged over about 35, we've carried our luggage by hand. Like ants carrying leaves or chimpanzees carrying their gathered nuts, it makes you wonder what other impossibly obvious things we've forgotten to invent. I think the, like the, the person on the street won't accept the official explanation of what happened to Gav Williams because the circumstances are very bizarre and people have a natural scepticism to as to what the security intelligence services do and, and what they will say about their employees. Having said that, when it comes to Russia, for example, Russia did kill people on, on British territory in recent years. However, the people that they've targeted have been people that they consider to be traitors. And so that's another thing is, you know, that I think the intelligence community in the UK and potentially the police as well, they're not really willing to, to kind of think that the Russians did it because, well, it's, it's, it's not really their MO. They would have risked the, 
kind of like a diplomatic incident yet again for no reward. I think that killing somebody that's considered to be a traitor is one thing because it makes kind of people in Britain go, well, they must have done something to piss the Russians off. But, you know, when, they have, when it's a serving member of GCHQ or MI6, it might be a different thing. And maybe they think, well, the Russians wouldn't, wouldn't want to risk that, that level of breakdown in our relationship. But there's the possibility that somebody else was involved. It could be somebody that's not actually officially linked to any foreign intelligence or whatever else, but it could just be that there was somebody else involved. And that would be the explanation for all of these things. That's kind of my theory. I think, unfortunately, it's, it's, it's very unlikely that we'll really know what, what happens. I mean, it would be fascinating one day, and I, I doubt that we'll ever be able to have access to it. But, you know, MI6 apparently did their own kind of internal investigation into it. You know, that would be very, very interesting. It will just be one of those mysteries in our lifetimes, I think. Pimlico, where William's body was found, is an affluent area of central London found on the other, which is to say, the wrong side of Buckingham Palace Road. To the north is the dizzying glitz of Belgravia. To the south, the slightly seedy world of budget hotels and alleged bordellos of Pimlico. I like the way the great novelist Barbara Pym put it. This shabby part of London, so very much the wrong side of Victoria Station, so definitely not Belgravia. But I'm an intrepid investigative journalist, not to mention the fact that I live three stops away on the tube. So I decided to walk down the street where, more than a decade ago, Gareth Williams met his sad, mysterious end. I'm standing outside the flat on Alderney Street in Pimlico where Gareth Williams' body was found. That was in August 2010, just a few months after my mother bought a house, quite literally just around the corner, and we moved in. Noel Coward referred in verse to the far less exotic but more patriotic restraints of Pimlico and... You can still see that applying. It's just the most normal street in London. It's sort of what you'd imagine. Stuccoed townhouses and budget hotels and Sainsbury's delivery vans passing by. It's nothing out of the ordinary. I can see a guy working from home on his laptop on a kitchen table. I wonder if he even knows the history of the flat he's living in. It's unlikely we'll ever truly know what happened to Gareth Williams. Certainly, it will be many years, many decades, before British intelligence declassifies files relevant to their inquiries, if they ever do. Whether you're there as a mathematician, or a linguist, or a janitor, or a full-blown spy, working for the intelligence services comes with the acceptance that anything could happen. Your life is not solely your own. But these same men and women have to go about the ordinary business of being ordinary humans, with hobbies and interests and sexual proclivities. There is no button for switching off the drive towards origami, the lure of German expressionist cinema, the urge to have hot wax stripped over your genitals. The spark of genius required of the human brain in becoming a maths whiz or a polyglot or, like James Bond, inevitably leaves markers of individualism, tracks of idiosyncrasy. And these tracks are the B-side of life. But whether you're the Cavaliers in the 1640s or GCHQ at the start of the new millennium, these glimmers of humanity are your greatest vulnerability. All codes start and finish with a person. All secrets begin and end with humans. And how? 
in an organization with thousands of looped-in employees, can you keep the biggest secret of all? That's next week on the final episode of The Town That Knew Too Much. This has been the sixth episode of The Town That Knew Too Much, written, produced and presented by me, Nick Hilton. The music is by George Jennings, based on The Planets by Gustav Holst. The entire score for the series is available to stream now on Spotify. This is the sixth part of a seven-part series, available on all good podcast platforms. You can find out more about the show on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. Just go to at thetownpod on any of those. Or visit www.thetownpod.com for episode notes and more information. If you're enjoying the show, please go to Apple or wherever and leave a rating and review. Next week is the final episode, so please take this moment to recommend the show to anyone who might be interested. It means a lot to me when I see people encouraging others to listen, especially when I haven't paid them to do so. The Town That Knew Too Much is a Podo podcast. For more information, visit podopods.com. Podopods.